Talkback Matters from the Salvos. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. In May 1960, a national body was formed and called the Australian Prison After Care Council. In 1967, it changed its name to Australian Crime Prevention Council. They've been responsible for setting up independent um, parole boards, the Institute of Criminology, criminal research, alternatives to imprisonment, uh, compensation to victims and crime, and a whole heap more. But finding the reason for the crime and determining whether the person knew the difference between right and wrong is not as easy as it seems. Our guest Ewan is a specialist in that area, and he helps us to unpack just a little bit of what's going on in their minds. Uh, Chris, I work with psychiatric triage in a public hospital emergency department, and my specialty is I'm doing my PhD in mental health. I've just finished my master's in forensic studies, so um, essentially my involvement with crime is often people are brought down that might have committed a crime, and we might want to know why they've committed the crime or if they're suffering from a mental impairment that might have affected their ability to judge whether the crime was right or wrong. There must be so many reasons as to why a person would commit a crime. Even defining crime itself is very difficult because when you think of crime, you can think of just what the law is, but sometimes in retrospect, a crime might have been figured to be unjust. You know, the law might have been unjust, like, you know, so many social revolutions, for example. But look, effectively, I mean, the simplest idea that people might commit a crime is to meet a material need that they can't really get under the normal rules of society. So they might want something, for example, or they might be poverty-stricken and need something. So they might, you know, commit a crime to get that material aid. Um, Look, some might commit a crime to alleviate an emotional pain. For example, someone that might commit an assault may have a parental issue, for example, or it might be a spur of the moment due to an argument and they commit a crime like punching someone or smashing something to alleviate their emotional pain. Others are quite opportunistic, Chris, and it was interesting here a little while ago, I don't know if you heard about the Westpac ATM that was dispersing extra money. Yes. <laughs> People were going in and getting hundreds of dollars, which wasn't theirs, and it's effectively the same as theft. But because the ATM was just giving it to them, you know, this crime of opportunity, they took it, and so many just took it and run. A lot of people obviously returned the money when they realised that they could get caught, for example. Um, others are a little bit more planned. Um, but some people might feel that, you know, someone commits a crime just feeling that a certain population might deserve the crime. So people might have a racial profile, for example, for committing a crime and thinking that that target, you know, particularly deserves to have a crime committed against them. In the movie Heat, uh, Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer and one other guy, I can't remember his name, I'm sure he'd love to know that I've just said that, (laughs) but they're robbing a bank and Robert De Niro is walking across the top of this bank counter, waving an AK-47 around and saying, we mean to harm no one, your money is safe, it's insured by the federal government. Exactly, and that's a really interesting one because some people might minimise the pain to the victim through that. So they think, oh, it's a bank, the money comes back. But of course what they don't think about is the people that are going to be traumatised by having guns waved around in their faces or that you and I and listeners have increased premiums in banks and insurance because people commit crimes. So they minimise the pain, but the reality is that the pain is still there. Look, others deny responsibility as well to a crime, so they might feel that they were pushed into it and had no other choice other than to commit the crime. 
There are things like antisocial personality disorders, Chris, where people might connect with others, they have impulsive control problems, so they might commit crimes. Also, psychiatric reasons, so, you know, someone might commit a crime which is in response to a paranoia, they might be feeling they're being followed or poisoned, for example. Sometimes there's societal change, so it might be to change society and the crime is justified sometimes in, in retrospect. An argument that is used is that I'm a good person, but I think... We all commit crimes, really. I think that's true, Chris. Like, a lot of people might download music or they might have minor speeding, you know, offences, so they, they minimise the crime and its impact on others and society. And I looked at the London riots and a policeman who was saying in England that it ended up being just um, simply acts of crime. They were opportunistic, those particular uh, events that happened around England. Absolutely. That, the West Pack, just shows that you put some people in certain circumstances and they commit a crime. And you'd be surprised what some people do when they think they just might get away a bit spur of the moment. I asked a man with wisdom the way that I should go. I just need some direction, sir. I've wandered from the road. Do you think that you could help me? Do you think that there's still hope? Tell me all I need to know. Tell me all I need to know. And he said, Love is the compass. It'll show you what is right, what is wrong.
On Light and Life this week, we're talking with Ewan from Psychiatric Triage Department in a Melbourne hospital about crime. In your role, how do you go about assessing why someone committed a crime and perhaps was it um, because of a mental unwellness at the time? It's a controversial area up to the point there was a high-profile crime here in Melbourne, for example, where you know there were some very prominent and very well-credentialed psychiatrists looking at whether, you know, we call it mad, bad or sad, and whether this person was dissociative when they committed a, a very horrific crime. And even then, these very well-psychiatrists um, disagreed on what, you know, whether the person was dissociative or not. So it's a controversial area. Chris, I guess how I go to it is, firstly... A simple guide is to consider the, the Crimes Act or the Mental Impairment or Unfitness to be Tried Act. You know, does a person understand a charge that could be brought before them? Can they understand what a trial is? Can they give instructions? Did they know at the time of the offence what they did was right or wrong in the nature of the conduct? Did they try to conceal the crime? I think for me that denotes some sort of knowledge between right and wrong and whether they've done something. Oh, but absolutely. And we start doing that from when we're a kid, don't we? Exactly right. In fact, children lying at a young age is considered an appropriate way of developing. But anyway, another story for another time. But you're right. Look, I guess when someone comes to us, the first thing we might look at is their past background. Do they have a history of impulsive violence or violence in context of drug use or, you know, a mental health illness or something like that, um, or alcohol use as well? Is it in context of a poverty have they done something in the past that we know has been fairly well planned or premeditated? And how is it, you know, on this time? Is it any different? And it's worth noting that some people commit very serious crimes but may not ever offend again if the, the circumstances around the time that they committed the crime was unusual or unlikely to be repeated. Right. Was it planned or was it impulsive? Was it to gain something or to avoid something? Were they under the influence of a, a mental illness or dissociation? Is it possible to say, is there a percentage of people who would try to put one over you by making you believe that they have an, a mental unwellness when they don't? Absolutely, Chris. We call it malingering, which is where someone will feign any symptom, and it doesn't have to be a psychiatric symptom. It can be any sort of symptom. So um, malingering is they might feign back pain to get compensation, for example, or to avoid going to court. So there might be something they'll gain or they'll avoid. And it's the same with... Um, mental health problems. Right. And how we do it is we look very intently on the illness they might be claiming to have and what's presenting before it. Right. We might look at clinical indicators. For example, someone with a paranoia, you can tell they might look distracted. Um, they might have evidence that they are, you know, competing with multiple inputs where they, you know, are looking around the room, scanning and having difficulty concentrating. But not just, you know, when they're interviewing, we'll look at them covertly. And Chris, believe it or not, it's actually very difficult to feign being psychotic, for example, for any long period of time because we're watching people when, you know, they don't believe that they're being watched by us. You know, there's even tricks of the trade that we might involve other therapists involved where we look at certain neurological tests such as their eyes or how they fall or how their arms move and all sorts of things. And we, we incorporate a, a mental state examination. Basically, how are they talking? Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it varied? Are they making sense? Are they making up words? Do they stray off the topic and never get to the point? Are they guarded, suspicious, thought disordered? Is there poverty of speech? I look at even things like eye contact or flat affect. Um, it's so unbelievably complex. It is. We're getting off topic to the, <laughs> the idea of crime, but it's just that what the human mind can do both intentionally and unintentionally is really interesting. And so after a crazy day having to assess people, how do you wind down? Uh, well, I have a lovely wife, a supportive wife. I do running, I do walking, and when all else fails, I play Xbox and watch Star Wars again. I actually heard that you're also a techno head. 
I'm into house music big time, I must confess. But um, some of the old school stuff, I don't know, I'm getting old, Chris, and some of this new techno is just noise to me. But yeah, I'm a bit of a, a, bit of a house music head. <laughs> hey, thanks for your time, Ewan. It's always a pleasure, mate. I don't want to set the world on fire I just want to start a flame in your heart That's Ewan from a psychiatric triage department in a Melbourne hospital who's giving us just the tip of the iceberg there, including touching on knowing the difference between right and wrong. I read something very interesting from antiquity in the books of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 33, when God said he made a covenant with the Israelites. He said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And there's many times in the Bible that God asks us to write his words on the tablets of our hearts. I just want to start a flame in your heart. 